We're dealing with a war. We're dealing with a war we've never dealt with before. It's the whole world versus a virus. We need a totally different mindset and organizational transformation. We can't do business the way we have always done business. Welcome to World vs. Virus, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that aims to make sense of the COVID-19 outbreak. Every week we bring you expert advice and analysis of the global crisis and what can be done to fix it. I'm Robin Pomeroy. At the start of the podcast, you heard New York Governor Andrew Cuomo talking of being on a war footing as Central Park was being turned into a field hospital. In this episode, we'll be hearing from this New York doctor and best-selling author who can't believe his eyes. If you were to walk around New York City right now, it is just a different place than it was. The subways are empty, Grand Central is empty. This Harvard Medical School expert tells us why testing, or the lack of it, has been shown to be crucial in the fight against the virus. Vietnam mounted a response quite early in the epidemic. Now contrast that with the United States, it was not done as quickly as Vietnam does. And for those of us in New York or elsewhere living in lockdown, we get mental survival tips from this former submariner. Making lists for the future can be really helpful to making you realize that there is a world on the other side. And when you get back to port, you'll be able to run those errands and buy those things and eat that food. And, you know, when the world sort of opens up for business again, you'll be able to go to those places and do all the things that you used to do. But first, some stories you may have missed. I'm joined by Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum's New York office. Linda, how are you? Ah, very good, Robin. How are you? Yeah, not bad, thanks. So you've picked uh, three stories from the World Economic Forum's coverage of COVID-19 this week? I picked three stories that I think highlight three unsung traits that I think can really help us protect ourselves right now. Skepticism, resolve, and compassion. Uh, The first one with skepticism, one of our colleagues, Alice Hazleton, she's a science program lead here at the Forum, she wrote a very helpful piece on how to read the news like a scientist. And in it, uh, she asks us to read responsibly, to share news responsibly, and to question everything. And critically, she reminds us that not everyone is an expert in everything, and not even scientists are versed in every single discipline. And I really think that this skepticism is a good way to reduce unnecessary noise, unnecessary stress, and uh, give us all a little bit of distance from some of the half-baked health tips we've all been seeing. I really like this story. It was called How to Read the News Like a Scientist and Avoid the COVID-19 Infodemic. I think that's a word even the World Health Organization has been using. It's just really simple advice about before you retweet or just believe what you read, check who's saying it. What's the second story, Linda? The second trait uh, I picked was resolve. And the second article that really highlights that is one that we did that looked at a study by McKinsey. And it explored a range of scenarios for economic recovery and virus control. And the good news is that all of the efforts that we're all doing, if we're very, very, very serious about it, lockdowns and the virus could be controlled in each country in two to three months. Uh, in that scenario, that uh, wonderful scenario, we could all start to recover maybe uh, by the third quarter of, of 2020, or at least some kind countries could. Um, However, if we're not able to contain the virus uh, and there's a resurgence, we wouldn't see recovery possibly until uh, 2023 by their projections currently. And what I uh, think is really important here is that it's just a great reminder that with Resolve, we can uh, sort of shape what's ahead of us and uh, shape the future that uh, is going to be before us. That one's called It Could Take Three Years for the US Economy to Recover from COVID-19. Three years. There's lots of studies and estimates going on at the moment. This is just one of many, but it's an interesting read, a study by McKinsey. What's your third story? 
My third article it, uh, looks at compassion and what it does is illustrates that uh, we're showing our mettle with the virus and how that can solve some other problems that we're having, such as climate change. And uh, we're, we're showing that we're able to mobilize a global response. We're able to make difficult decisions in the short term that can help everyone in the months and the years ahead. And uh, many of the changes that we're making right now are really driven by compassion. And the article points that out. And tapping into that compassion is going to be really, really important to help us focus on ways to solve a host of other problems that we know about, that we knew about before the pandemic, to keep everyone safe from those calamities down the road. That one's called How COVID-19 Might Help Us Win the Fight Against Climate Change. A really interesting read for me, it was about how we're going to rethink a lot of the way we do things, which is something we have to do anyway if we're going to address the climate crisis. So it's about rethinking risk, learning to trust experts again, and making major changes in the culture, in the way we do things. Great. Those are three really good stories. You can find them on our website at wefforum.org. Linda, thank you very much. I'm joined by my colleague Beatrice DiCaro. Beatrice, how are you? I'm doing good, thank you. How about you? Not bad, thanks. Beatrice runs the World Economic Forum Book Club. It's got 400,000 members around the world. Beatrice selects a book every month and she has the author replying to questions posed by those people. She's had Yuval Harari, the author of Homo Sapiens, Melinda Gates and Beatrice, today as we're recording this, you're announcing the April author. Who's that? Isabel Allende and her new book, A Long Petal of the Sea. Very exciting. That is exciting. House of the Spirits author, I believe. Exactly. But that's not what we're talking about today. You spoke to another author, Matt McCarthy, who's someone you featured an excerpt of his book. What was the book that you discussed on the book club? The book was called Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic. And basically, he looks at the history of bacteria and antibiotics uh, to the discovery of penicillin, to new sources of medicine. Um, so obviously very relevant with the pandemic going on. Very relevant because not only is a best-selling author, he's a working doctor at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Beatrice, you took questions from book club members. What was the first thing you asked him? I asked him to talk to us about the current situation in New York and how that's becoming the global epicenter for COVID-19. If you were to walk around New York City right now, it is just a different place than it was. Um, the subways are empty, the Grand Central is empty, um, people are really practicing this social distancing. Some people feel like we've been in this for a while now, but those of us who are, are, do forecasting and mathematical modeling know uh, the worst is yet to come. You know, we've got weeks and weeks of this ahead of us. And so we aren't just planning for the day-to-day -day operations. We're looking at months from now, how things are going to play out. Uh, and that's what keeps uh, a lot of us up at night. How has your day-to-day -day life been uh, at the hospital? The people who see patients with me know that I value two traits in healthcare workers, toughness and kindness. And it's really not that hard to have one of those traits, but it can be really tough to put those two things together. And what I'm seeing day after day is just extraordinary displays of toughness and kindness from people um, in all walks of life. And, and, and so, you know, I don't wake up every day feeling frustrated or feeling angry. I'm, I'm just fully engaged and focused and really just proud to be part of this community that's responding to a, uh, to a pandemic. Here's one of the first questions from one of our book club members from Jamie in Michigan, USA. He asks, could there be more waves for the virus? As I'm trying to remember my reading from the 1918 influenza, and I believe there were waves of the virus, and the second one was deadlier than the first. That's exactly right. So the, the influenza outbreak of 1918 
um, the first wave killed a lot of people, but then there was this second wave that was far more deadly. And we're looking for that now. So you're seeing in Wuhan and in parts of China, they're returning to normal life. They're lifting the restrictions. In Wuhan, it's gonna be lifted on April 8th. Uh, and what we're all looking to see is what happens next. Do the cases start creeping up? Um, there is this hope that coronavirus is going to induce herd immunity, meaning that we're all just gonna sort of become protected by it at, at some point. Um, I'm not so sure. And this is something that a lot of us are preparing to last a long time. You know, there are four different coronaviruses that have become endemic to humans, meaning that they're constantly circulating. And what we're looking to see is, is this novel coronavirus going to be the fifth? And we don't know, but it's certainly possible that there are going to be waves of this. A lot of our book club members asked, how is it possible that certain individuals become carriers but don't experience any symptoms? Yeah, that's one of the unusual things here is that so many people, um, celebrities even, are testing positive um, who didn't even know they had symptoms. They just wanted to, you know, get tested because they had a close contact. And that's part of the science that we're trying to unravel right now. Uh, part of it has to do with something called an ACE2 receptor, which is how the virus gets into people's cells and into the body. Um, but we don't really know why an older person may be able to shake it off with minimal symptoms, and then a young, healthy person goes to the intensive care unit. Um, there is something called cytokine storm, which is this idea that our immune system sees the virus and goes into overdrive and tries to tackle the virus. And in doing so, actually creates more harm than good. And that's what gets young people into trouble. Um, but we don't quite know why that is and why some people almost are found incidentally to have this infection. That's gonna be one of the great questions for us to answer over the next couple of months. Swapnil from India asks, what would be the long-term impact of COVID-19 in the coming years? If it becomes endemic, and it's something that we have to live with year in and year out, then it may become akin to, the, to influenza, where there is a vaccine. Uh, influenza kills between 25 and 69,000 Americans every year. It's kind of almost unthinkable to, to imagine there's gonna be another virus that's doing something similar. But these are the kind of things we have to consider and, and to forecast for. And that's why there's a lot of work with vaccines right now. The first uh, American vaccine trial began on March 16th. Uh, the first dose went into a, a healthy woman, a 43-year-old mother from Seattle. She's going to get her second dose four weeks later. And by late May or June, we're going to have an idea about whether or not this vaccine is safe. This study does nothing to tell us if it's effective. That's going to be a separate trial. Um, but the, the role of vaccination is going to be crucial for us to combat this virus that probably is going to be around for a while. Matt McCarthy, author and doctor, was talking to Beatrice DiCaro. Beatrice, thanks very much. Thank you, Robin. That was The View from New York, a city struggling. So is any city or country managing to get it right in the fight against COVID-19? We asked two US experts who work on, among other things, Vietnam, a country that heeded the World Health Organization advice to test, test, test. Some countries, for example, in South Korea, we've heard a lot about how much testing they're doing. And also where I live in Vietnam, um, where they're scaling up testing as well. The testing strategy is, is much more... Um, community-based than, than hospital-based, like in the United States. 
That's Harvard Medical School's Todd Pollock in Hanoi, where he runs an initiative called the Partnership for Health Advancement in Vietnam. He told us about that country's approach to the crucial issue of testing. In Vietnam, the government is trying to test as many people as possible. That basically means anyone who um, is coming from a high-risk area, which essentially became anyone coming in, flying into the country during March, uh, the, during the month of March before they basically stopped incoming flights. Uh, all, all passengers are getting, being quarantined and tested. Of course, if you have symptoms, you're being tested, but if you're a close contact, um, of, of, of someone with symptoms, you're also being tested. So this is a different strategy. This is a strategy that is uh, about uh, trying to identify as many people as possible, including asymptomatic people um, that, that may have the virus, and then using the results of that to isolate positive cases um, and quarantine uh, uh, contacts of cases to try to slow the spread of the virus. Unfortunately, in the United States, because uh, the virus was spreading kind of unknown for quite a while. And also because of the problems rolling out the test, it's kind of a, a strategy that the U.S. has been so far unable to implement. Vietnam borders China. Dr. Pollock's Harvard colleague, David Duong. When the first Wuhan cases were reported, Vietnam immediately mobilized. And then when the first cases were imported into the country, starting with Da Nang, the central Vietnam first, followed by Ho Chi Minh City in mid-January, the government started implementing immediate protocols in place and, and mobilizing domestically mass PPE equipments and started looking at diagnostic testing and what isolation would look like. So Vietnam mounted a response quite early in the epidemic in January. Um, they started closing their borders quite rapidly um, also in January. I flew out of the airport in January, but also saw um, them setting up stations for health quarantine, but also for temperature checks. Now contrast that with, we look at the United States, the mobilization efforts um, we saw, if we compare that of the United States to a country like Vietnam that was that situated right next to China, it was not done as quickly um, as um, the Vietnam case. In New York City, things are overwhelmed and there are so many cases now that you need to concentrate your uh, resources, meaning supplies and people and money on the sickest patients or the ones in the hospital, right? So that's where the focus is. Uh, in Vietnam, where the numbers are much smaller um, and the focus is much more on containment of the virus at this stage. Um, so the resources can be uh, spent on, on this kind of um, community testing. That was Todd Pollock and David Duong from the Harvard Medical School and the Partnership for Health Advancement in Vietnam. They were speaking to Gail Markovitz. To learn more on what they had to say about COVID-19 testing strategies, check out Gail's article, To Test or Not to Test, on our website. Many of us around the world are under some form of lockdown, and we're not used to it. So we wondered, who might have an insight into coping with life in a confined space? My colleague, Amanda Russo, remembered she had an old friend who used to work on a submarine in the US Navy, John Rafferty. So she called him up to reminisce. Way back in the day when we first met, you were just about to go off to Japan. You joined the US Navy. That's right. uh, and then you were an anti-submarine warfare officer, is that right? 
That's exactly right. Uh, most people don't remember that so precisely, so I'm impressed. <laughs> I served on ships hunting submarines off the coast of Japan. Can you talk about your experience? Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened, how you dealt with it? One of the first things I did when I kind of buckled in for the month-long trip from Europe to the U.S. Um, was thinking about and trying to identify with whom I had the weakest relationship and then working on those relationships very intentionally. And that was because I knew that we were going to be in these confined quarters uh, for a prolonged period of time and that I could not possibly afford having a bad relationship with anyone in such small quarters. Um, and so I, I did, I sort of sought out those people that maybe I didn't see eye to eye with, or I could tell we just, our personality types kind of clashed and said, I'm gonna work on this. I'm gonna at least have a kind of passable relationship with this person um, so that when we are in the food line together or when I you know, do brush up against them in the hall, it's not weird um, and there's no hard feelings. I mean, you had no windows, that's right. You had you were in you know under a lot of water. I no internet would have freaked out. No internet. How did you how did you deal with this day to day? I think I started by trying to make a list of things that brought me joy, and by trying to incorporate each of those things into my daily life. On that list of things that brought me joy, um, on that submarine uh, were the stairmaster. That I found on board. I was just starting a new book at the time and I was pretty excited to read it. And I also added to that list uh, watching newly released films. I mean, obviously it's a very different experience being underwater for a month and then being, you know, in your house or in your home. But are you seeing any parallels now? Or you- I mean, I am seeing a number of parallels and one of them just is really simple and it begins with showering and putting on clean clothes once a day. Um, the days that we let ourselves kind of lounge around the house the way we would on a sick day or Saturday, there's a different feeling to your work. There's a different feeling and rhythm to your life. Um, but those days where we get up, we exercise, we shower, we put on clean clothes, then we are ready to show up maybe in front of our computers and put in a good day's work. Um, and so I noticed that that makes a really big difference. Do you have any advice for people who might be feeling a little bit anxious? Yeah, there were a lot of times when I felt anxious, both on the submarine and on the ship. And I found that by talking to other sailors, I was able to take the attention away from myself and kind of listen to what other people were struggling with and hear that sometimes it wasn't so different than what I was struggling with. And I've actually found the very same thing to be true in the last seven to 10 days as I've been staying inside significantly more to avoid COVID-19. Trying to ask those around me, whether it's my wife um, or folks that I get on a video happy hour with um, about themselves and actually try to listen, try to commit myself to just pay attention and listen. And it sort of makes you feel a little less alone. Making lists for the future can be really productive and really helpful to giving you hope and also uh, making you realize that there is a world on the other side. And when you get back to port, you'll be able to run those errands and buy those things and eat that food. And, you know, when the world sort of opens up for business again, you'll be able to go to those places and do all the things that you used to do. That's all from World Versus Virus this week. You can follow all our coverage of COVID-19 at weforum.org. And follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Let's end on an up note. 
superstar musician Yo-Yo Ma, who also happens to be a trustee of the World Economic Forum, responded to COVID-19 by launching the hashtag Songs of Comfort and encouraging fellow musicians to put their live performances online. Yo-Yo Ma himself has put many pieces out, just search the hashtag Songs of Comfort. But we'll leave you with this from Angelique Kidjo, a three-time Grammy Award-winning singer from Benin in West Africa. Angelique has collaborated with orchestras around the world as well as pop stars including Bono and John Legend. She also won a World Economic Forum Crystal Award for services to and beyond music. Angelique Kidjo's song for comfort, live from her own armchair, is called Colombo. Shake, go, go. 